This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. You can now download the latest episode of The Candid Frame directly to your smartphone or tablet using the Candid Frame app. Available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows 8, you can automatically receive and listen to the latest episode minutes after it's released. Mark and download your favorites or send your comments and suggestions directly to me via the app. Download it today using your favorite app store or click on the links in the show notes found at the Candid Frame website. Before I introduce today's guest, I'd like to share a few things with you. If you haven't visited the website recently or at all, I suggest you do so as we're beginning to provide some new content on the TCF blog. I'm not only producing one to two YouTube videos a week, but I'm also including some more written articles on the site as well. In the videos in the coming weeks, I'll be speaking on the topic of black and white photography, specifically various techniques for black and white conversions. The first video is uh, already up, in which I demonstrate my technique for creating a black and white image using Adobe Lightroom. In subsequent weeks, I'll be talking about various plugins, including Silver Effects Pro, Alien Skin Exposure, and Mac Fontanality. I'm also choosing listener photographs that have been submitted to the TCF Flickr pool to discuss different aspects of photography. These videos are more than just critiques, but rather uh, an opportunity to have important discussions of how we see and how we make photographs that I'm hoping will be helpful to you. One last thing, a listener recently sent me an email regarding a trip I'm taking to Sacramento. They explained in the email that they were excited that it was coming up, but because of personal issues, they wouldn't be able to attend. So I had wanted to respond to you, but I was in, unable to find the email. So I'm not blowing you off. If, if you're hearing this, please drop me a line again, as I would love to get back to you. Now, regardless of where you are in the world, we are witnessing incredible changes, both good and bad. As we grow older and the world keeps moving faster and faster, advances are being made in technology, medicine, and culture. But along with some of these advances, there is a lot that is being lost along the way. Most often, it's the stories of people who've faced amazing challenges long before there were digital cameras and the internet. The stories of Chinese women who during the first half of the 20th century were subject to the practice of foot binding are examples of histories that are quickly being lost. These women who are now in their 80s and older have been a subject of today's guest photographer Joe Farrell, who has made it a personal goal to photograph and document the stories of these women, who not only lived through an incredible painful process for the sake of beauty and security, but beautiful and strong women who made a life for themselves and their families despite the political and social upheaval in China. We began our conversation with Jo, discovering how she was led to tell the stories of these amazing women. I have been photographing on and off since about 1998, and I had a particular interest in traditions and cultures that are dying out. But mainly, I have an architectural background or work with architects. My father is an architect. And so 
I had an exhibition in London in 2006, which mainly included my work from China, Tibet, and Cuba. And the feedback I got from that was that it would be great if I focused more on a specific subject rather than being more generalized. And so I decided I wanted to look into women's traditions and cultures that are dying out. And having been in and out of Asia for the last 20 years, my first um, thought was of women with bound feet. But I had read about them in books like Wild Swans um, and Life and Death and Shanghai. Ever heard of whether there was still any women remaining? Okay, so I in 2006 I was in China and was asking around and everyone said that they had not heard of any women that were still around uh, with bound feet. And so I asked the driver and he said his grandmother, Zhang Yongying, had bound feet. And so she became the first subject in my project and I went to her village and photographed her, interviewed her, met her and then found other women through that method. Uh, tell me about um, your encounter with her that, that, that first time, because like you said, you had been looking for someone for, for a bit. Uh, how did you sort of explain what you wanted to, to do? Did she have, a, have an awareness of, of you know, her sort of a historic role in, in, in this particular uh, type of with this, with this story? So it, it's been the same with other women that I have met with bound feet that I have to explain the project and to make sure that they understand that this is more of an academic anthropological project than uh, just a tourist coming in and taking snapshots. When I first met Zhang Yongying, I explained to her that I was trying to celebrate the lives of women with bound feet and that they had been through so much during their lives including famine and the Cultural Revolution, as well as having bound feet, that I wanted to show the women uh, behind the feet and what these women were like and what their lives and family were. And what was your understanding of the practice before you had the chance to meet these women in person? You mentioned that you had had the opportunity to read uh, some of that history in, in, in books, but going in, um, what were you sort of expecting to find? The books that I've read and the books that are about bound feet, there's some books, one is called Splendid Sister Slippers, Splendid Slippers, um, all talk about the beautiful embroidered shoes and how it was uh, women who did not need to work, who were carried around, who lived a life of luxury, who were the elite in China. And when I started this project, I discovered that most of the women that are remaining with bound feet all are from peasant farming land and that they had to work for a living, especially as they grew up during the Cultural Revolution, that they were expected to work to um, get food. So it... It was very different from what I originally expected that these women were, they walk around, they work in the fields, they're um, hardworking. And it's also quite amazing that um, 
I assumed that I would think that the feet were horrible or grotesque, but when I first met Zhang Yongying, I held her feet in my hands and they were so soft and there was a form of beauty about it because I, just holding her feet, I knew that I could see how much she had been through and that it really touched me. Yeah, as you mentioned, they went not only through this or you know this physical ordeal of having their feet bound, but they went through the cultural revolution and they went through a lot. And was it a challenge in terms of getting them to be forthcoming about their experiences, not just about their their, their feet and this sort of cosmetic thing that had happened with uh, with them? Um, how? How open were they were, were to your inquiries about not just photographing them, but, but about their lives? Good question. I think that it is ingrown in, in Chinese culture that you don't have a personal story, per se, that um, because of the Cultural Revolution, that many people believe that they are you know, one of the people rather than they are an individual and to get them to explain or tell stories about their own lives was particularly hard and is still hard. I'm still trying to find new ways of getting the women to open up. They don't believe they have a personal story. And if I say to them, you know, can you tell me a story about having bound feet or your marriage or your children, they stumble with answers because they cannot put it into words um, or don't see the, any significance in their own words. It's a very cultural thing. Um, and so I've had to try different ways of asking questions or uh, ask many more. I typically go into these areas with a, a local translator uh, as the dialect in even small areas in the provinces in China differ quite much, quite a lot. So it it's, has been a bit of a struggle trying to get each personal story from them. Can you walk us through what that process was in terms of their feet being uh, being bound? I, you know, they uh, they started undergoing the process as young as as you know four years old, but. Could you describe to people what these women had to, to go through? So the majority of women that I have interviewed and photographed didn't have their feet bound until they were 11, 12, or 13, rather than uh, what is reported in the press quite often of, of a, a young, much younger child of four or five. Uh, they had already learned to run and walk and skip before they had their feet bound. The process uh, was normally done by their mother, uh, who typically also had bound feet. And it was the mother wanting the best for their daughter, to give them the best life. And it physically what would happen is that the feet would be bound or wrapped in bandages, long bandages, so that the little toes would go beneath the sole with the big toe remaining pointing outwards. Uh, then the bindings would go behind the heel 
and back down to the front so that there would become an arch between the heel and the sole of the foot. Basically, the, the ankle would, be, would grow upwards so that there would be a space between the heel and the sole. So that was how the small foot was created, was actually by reducing the length of the foot by going upwards as well as width-wise by binding the toes. So originally when this is done, um, the way that they would carry on reducing the size of the foot was that the, the child, the daughter, would have to walk on her feet, which would make the bones of the small toes break beneath her foot. And then a the foot would be placed in a shoe, um, a small shoe, and then a month later, a smaller shoe would be um, used, and then a smaller shoe, so reducing the size over time. Wow, I mean, it's pretty, pretty intense. And I was reading that sometimes, even when they were older, they would have to sort of repeat the process um, because as they, they, they grew, they still would need to, you know, re-break the, the bones of the foot sometimes in order to ensure that the foot remained yes. small. I mean, one of the things is that it was originally banned in 1911, but continued on and was forcibly stopped uh, with the start of the Cultural Revolution in 1949. And they would have Red Guards come round to the cities and the villages and forcibly remove the bindings from the women's feet. The women that I've spoken to have said that this process of actually unbinding the feet was just as painful, that having to learn to walk again in a different way um, put a lot of pressure on their feet. They said that the first year of foot binding when they were a child was the most painful. I mean, part of it was that they um, would get a lot of infections and um, obviously the toes are breaking originally. So uh, and when they were older and had to unbind their feet, a lot of them actually carried on in secret binding their feet and wearing like shoes with socks stuffed down them so that people wouldn't know because it was more comfortable to still have the feet bound. Yeah. And they weren't doing, doing this purely for the aesthetic in terms of how it looked, in terms of how these women's feet would look so small in, in shoes. It was, you know, it was suggested that these women were, would be preferred for, for having wives and starting families. Is that right? Completely. I mean, there's, it's twofold the reasons why they continued uh, having bound feet. I mean, one of them was more of a status that they were considered to be a more suitable bride, that they would be seen as subservient and also that they would not complain. So two ideal traits for a bride uh, or a wife, that they would be a good wife. But it was also so that they could marry up, that they could have um, more chance of marrying into a family that had more land or more sheep or more farming equipment. And so they would have a better life. 
What, what were some of the challenges that these women had to face even after they had, you know, maybe they did have the opportunity to marry someone that uh, improved, you know, their lives financially, uh, having, you know, this sort of imposed physical deformity in, in some ways uh, really must have hampered their ability, particularly if they had to work like in the fields like you, you just mentioned. Did they, did your subjects talk about how, you know, how they had to sort of work around this imposed limitation? They generally do not talk about having to work around having bound feet because, as I said before, they don't feel that they have like a personal story. But I think also there is a part of it that um, these are very difficult times they were brought up in, that the Cultural Revolution had a lot to do with how they ran their lives, that um, you weren't supposed to have your own story, that you were, uh, you know, you worked for the government, that if you, um, uh, foot binding was a symbol of luxury, of, of uh, a life of leisure. So these women were, you know, also treated badly um, because of the fact that uh, they were a symbol of uh, luxury, even though they were farm workers. So they, they had a hard time, uh, as opposed to previous generations, you know, they had a much harder time because they um, had to work in the fields and had to provide provisions to their family. The majority of the women that I have documented had between like five and nine children each. And they, you know, often gave birth in the fields. They didn't have the luxury of, you know, maternity leave or anything that they, you know, they worked through it. It was a hard time, it's a very hard time, and they um, have done it incredibly well. I mean, this one of the saddest things I heard was that woman, one woman said that um, when one of her children died during the famine, she could not mourn the child because she couldn't feed it, and she just had to get on with life. Oh, wow. Did, did the fact that you were a, a foreigner, you were an outsider, help or hinder you in terms of you being able to get them to, to, to open up and, and to be willing to, to have you photograph them? I think it, it did both. I think it helped that I uh, am a foreigner going in because the majority of the Chinese don't want to remember the old ways, the old traditions. And so they um, probably would not have a Chinese photographer or anthropologist going in asking them questions. Or, um, so it's been easier as a foreigner to do that. Um, I think it was more difficult because although I speak uh, Putinois Mandarin, that the dialect of a local area is, is hard to grasp and that I do have to use a translator. And so some things are lost in translation. It's also a, a, the cultural side of it that 
I remember at one point, one of the old ladies was started getting upset and crying. And the translator said, I can't go on anymore. She's upset. And I had to explain to my translator that if she didn't want to tell her own story, then she wouldn't. She wants this story to be out there. And that's why, you know, even if it's upsetting, that is why she is willing to tell me. So I had to persuade the translator mm. to continue because um, he didn't actually feel comfortable anymore. But that's part of, you know, the, his upbringing. You don't make, you know, the old ladies, the nanas uh, cry. Tell me about this interest in in cultures that are disappearing, because you've, you've mentioned that in some of the interviews that I've, 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 I've read before for, for the interview. What's the fascination with, with using your camera to document things like, like this? I think it has a lot to do with realizing that the camera uh, photograph can capture something that will no longer be there. And it first started when I went to Beijing in 1998 and I was photographing around the Hutong areas. And I realized at one point that I was being followed. And finally, this man came up to me and said, in English, he said, um, I'm so glad that you are photographing this area and these buildings because the symbol that is painted on the side of them actually represents the fact that they are empty and uh, ready for uh, demolition. And it's so good to know that somebody is recording this. And that was kind of a start of a long journey that I realized that, my God, these will be gone. And in fact, I have stood many years later in the same area where there are tower blocks and the hutongs completely disappeared. That it's something uh, to photograph things that will never, you know, that they are history. They are part of our foundation, but they are disappearing. And that's especially the case in, in the large urban areas in, in China. Uh, oh, completely, seen, yes. Yeah, I've seen several documentaries that talk about about how a lot of that old cultural and uh, traditional uh, stories, buildings, architecture are, you know, being mowed down in order to advance, you know, what's considered progress. Um, but you, your, are your stories, the stories that you're telling, are they taking you outside of the urban areas? I think you've mentioned that... Uh, that uh, many of these women live in small rural communities. Is, is it much? Is that change happening much more slowly there, or is it impacting their their communities and their lives as well? It is completely impacting their lives. The area that I go to is a three-hour uh, bus journey from the most uh, local railway station, and. It over the last eight years since I've been going there, the the original town center is is spreading outwards, and it's enveloping it's it's all the surrounding villages. Uh, this changes quite a few things. There's one village I went to 
where at the end of the road they were building a new railway station. Um, and so the, the villagers were told by the government that they will be demolished and will be moved into the center. So this, the center of this town is now growing. It's humongous. Um, it's, it's, but it's swallowing up traditional life. Most of the villages I go to are named after the family name, as is was typical in China, that there was a Wang family or a, a, a Hugh family or a Wong family or a Zhong family, and that everybody in that village had that surname, and that you all of the women were married into another village, into their husband's village, and would travel there by a sedan chair. But now what's happened is that the they are becoming part of a, a bigger metropolis and the children also are moving further away so that they can get work. A lot of the, these are farmers, peasant people, and a lot of the land has been taken up by uh, urban sprawl. And so it is the dynamic of it is completely changing. You know, there isn't the family structure anymore. The, that with the traditional structure of how everybody lived together in the same village, there, you know, the the Zhang Yongying, her son, who is kind of the main person in the family, he actually works in Mongolia. Uh, the daughter, um, her children have gone to university uh, in different places in the province. They've gone to Qingdao and Jinan, and so they're no longer in the area. That must be heartbreaking for them. I mean, I know they, they, they I'm sure, wanted better for their, for their families, but I, they grew up at a time where, where family would remain close, and now, as a result of all this, all this change, families are being put further and further apart. It must take a real personal toll on, on them. I think to certain it takes a personal toll, but I think that it comes with it the joy of when they return home, that it's an event. Um, I, I've also seen the camaraderie of the women in the villages with other women with bound feet, that they, they have, you know, uh, a fun life that when I, I, will pop into these villages and they typically don't know that I'm coming back or what time of year I'm coming back and I'll come along and they'll be, you know, sitting together uh, shelling peas or um, eating watermelon. And I think as women of 80s and 90s uh, and they are single widows, that, so they, they spend their time with women who are like themselves. And I think it's important to note that regardless of how us as Westerners may may have viewed the the, the practice, that these women don't see themselves as as victims or martyrs or anything anything of the like. Not at all. Um, they know that you know it, it is part of their cultural that they uh, feel our piety that you you did everything for your your father, for your husband, for your son. And that is the way that they were, uh, were brought up and that they believe that is the structure of how things work. So besides, you know, finding, finding the women to photograph them and, and sort of 
greasing the wheels so that they would open up their lives to you. What were some of the other challenges that you faced in terms of making these photographs photographs happen? Um, I suppose at the point, the, I use black and white film. Uh, I always use Ilford. <laughs> Ilford black and white film I've used the majority of my life. And so it, it's difficult with... Obviously, as there's any, uh, with a Hasselblad, there's only 12 frames on a roll. So carrying camera film, like my next trip, I should be carrying probably um, approximately 100 rolls of film, unexposed film. And that, that is difficult to traveling in China and, you know, internationally with the whole um, not putting the film through x-ray machines and in the railway stations in China, they have these huge X-ray machines that you even to enter the railway station, you have to put your bags through. And so I have difficulty trying to explain to them that I will, you know, not, I refuse to put my film through there. It's also rather bulky, especially when uh, traveling on trains in China. And... Um, you know, there's, there's technical difficulties of them. Um, when I traveled there in 2008, before the Olympics, it was in the June, so a couple of months until the Olympics started, and I arrived in Jinan Airport, and they refused to let me travel in Jinan with the four cameras that I had. I had one digital one uh, 35mm SLR and two Hasselblads. And they confiscated two of my cameras, which I would get, or I did get back when I left Jinan Airport uh, to return back to Hong Kong. But they said it's because I didn't have a permit to photograph in China, which I'd never needed before. And I then said to them, is there a camera shop in Jinan that is open, um, you know, every day? And they said, yes. And I said, would they rent or sell me a similar camera to this? And they said, yes. So I, they didn't see the irony in it that they were <laughs> confiscating my cameras. But, you know, just down the road, I could actually get a new one. So that can be the, part of the, the difficulty in it's a more of a cultural difficulty trying to, they, they, I mean, it took about two hours. I ended up sitting on the floor in uh, the departure, uh, not departure, in the arrivals and wouldn't leave. And so they were, were not used to having a, a Westerner sitting on their floor saying, no, you cannot take my cameras. <laughs> so how did, how did this project sort of influence or, or what perspective did it give you in terms of what people do for beauty? I mean, we, we every culture has uh, some sort of body modification. Uh, some are considered barbaric, some unnecessary. But you know, regardless of what it is, uh, we all do it. And and what sort of perspective does this sort of give you on all the things that we as Westerners and non-Westerners do for the sake of appearing attractive. You took the words right out of my mouth. Um, 
I have done actual presentations and lectures on foot binding, and I will typically start out with that in every society and culture, there are different forms of body modification that are acceptable to that society. And that if we look at those before you look at things like um, foot binding, you can see that we do do things that are uh, – you know, considered more beautiful or just more acceptable. From Western society, there are, you know, breast augmentation. There is a thing, there's a thing called a toe tuck where the small toe is, the bone is shaved so that you can wear pointier, daintier Jimmy Choo shoes or whatever. Um, there's rib removal so that you have a smaller waist. There's butt enhancements. There's all kinds of things that are done in Western society. In other societies, in African tribes, stuff they have a lot of scarring or um, tattooing or they will put lips, um, sorry, discs in their lips or they will stretch the head of a, a baby so that it's more uh, elongated. So it, they believe that the, the child looks like it has or has uh, more brain power. Um, you know, in Vietnam and uh, Burma, they have the um, long necks, the giraffe women. There, there's all kinds of body modification that we go through. I have discussions with women in Hong Kong about, you know, they, the Chinese girls will like look at the, the bound feet and go, oh God, that's so ugly. And I say, try to explain body modification or what, what we do to be deemed, um, you know, acceptable. And I say, you know, do you pluck your eyebrows or wax your legs? Do you know, do you do this? And they're like, well, yes. And I'm like, why? And they go, well, because we should. Like, why? Why should you? And so it has become more and more that I'm more understanding of these different things that we do in culture. And it's, I think it's quite amazing. It's more women that will do this than men, although that is now changing, that men are now having a lot more cosmetic surgery procedures um, or attending beauty salons for various waxing and um, manicures and pedicures. It's not unusual these days to see a man in there. Um, so it's, you know, we are obsessed with, with the way we look. And it seems to me, and, 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 and please uh, disagree with me if, 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 uh, if it's appropriate, but it seems that, that a lot of this body modification at one point was in, in really infused with the culture of a community and the people. And now it seems that so much of body modification is done more as a commercial enterprise and it's built on people's fears and insecurities than necessarily being part of uh, a collective practice, if that, if that makes any sense. No, I completely agree. I mean, the number one uh, cosmetic surgery in China is a double eyelid which is to actually have a more Western-looking eye that you, um, you, know, you can blink, you can see the double eyelid. Um, in Korea, I was reading about that the more, most recent uh, cosmetic surgery that is having the corners of the mouth upturned so they don't look like they're, you're frowning when your mouth is relaxed. It looks like you're smiling. 
Um, you know, there is various crazy cosmetic surgery that goes on that I think is more done for the individual to uh, not necessarily as as a cultural as as part of their cultural that they it, it's also to do with the globalization of the world that they're looking at you know how other people are uh, presenting themselves and therefore are changing their appearance uh, to what they see as celebrities or kind of stars in the news are, are looking like. You know, you, you mentioned early in the interview that the, the feedback to your initial work that you had done uh, had suggested that they had suggested that you focus on, on, on a story and, and you've done that with this project. And even though you haven't completed it yet, how, how do you feel you've changed and improved as a photographer as a result of having just that kind of focus? I think it's extremely important as a photographer to focus on a project. I think that I, I now have been sent various photographers' work that have seen my work in the press and they've asked me to comment on theirs. And the majority of the times is that it's too generalized, that it needs, you need to have your own voice. You need to be able to have passion about a project and that you need to see in depth. I mean, I'm all about the details and I love photographing details, which is partly why I have been photographing bound feet, but I, I like getting in the information. I like the, the overall picture going through down to the details. And so I think that's what I was taught. I, I did a photojournalism course in San Francisco, um, back in, Oh, 99. And I really understood more about how you put a story across by showing all the different sides of it. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, it does. So what's, yeah. what's next for you? Because you did have a Kickstarter campaign and you were able to, to succeed in, in, in gaining the funds to continue the project. But uh, from what, what, uh, what are the next stages uh, for this and what are you hoping to do eventually with it? With the, with the Bound Feet project? Yes. Uh -huh. um, what I want to do is I'm, I, I'm creating a, a book that will is mainly for the contributors uh, to the Kickstarter fund, but um, I've had a lot of interest in it, so I'm hoping to print more copies, and my wish is that a major publisher will actually pick it up and, and run with it, and that I can also do an exhibition, maybe a traveling exhibition. Um, you know, I'd like future generations to actually be able to look back at this and see the women behind the feet and um, be able to understand more about other cultures. Is there one, one story or one anecdote that you can give me uh, about one of these women that you felt like, you know, that, that beyond the photographs that you were able to make, that, 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 that there was something that they shared with you that was a, a valuable takeaway that, that may have made the entire project well, well worth it? I think one of the main things was um, my first translator. She, I found through a school. She was an English teacher at a local school. 
And when I sat down and discussed the project with her, it turned out that her grandmother had bound feet. And I was like, wow. So she really understood the project. We, every year that I've gone back, I've met up with her, even if she's not my translator anymore. And she completely gets it. And part of that is because she had never been told about her grandmother's feet. Uh, one occasion we went to her grandmother's house and I photographed both of them together on the bed uh, with no shoes on. And she said it was the first time that she had seen her grandmother's feet. And she thanked me saying that you know, her grandmother was in her early 80s and that she has that story now and she knows her heritage and what, you know, where she came from and why this was done. And that was, you know, a very poignant moment realizing that, you know, even this woman who um, was helping me had never gone into her own family and looked at that. And then... One thing that happened afterwards was that there was a, a family meeting and I was basically told I could not use the photographs that included my translator. And I said, I completely understand. I, don't, I have model releases from all the women that I photograph and I don't have a model release from my translator and that I would never use it without her consent. But it, they were not concerned about showing the grandmother's feet. They were concerned about showing this 25-year-old's feet, mm. because they thought they could be, the photographs <clears throat> could easily be put on the internet and that she could be laughed at or there would be bad comments or they would be used in a wrong way. And that struck me as very interesting that the youth in uh, China today are more concerned with how they look than, um, or what somebody else will say about them, even if it's not true. That I asked her, who are they? Who are they that are laughing or making fun of you? And she couldn't answer it. And I said, well, this is, if you know that you had this photograph taken in a very genuine way, what does it matter what these other people say? And she couldn't answer that. So uh -huh. I think it's a, a telling tale of life in China now. My last question that I ask each guest is that I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Too many photographers. Oh, God. Um, well, living in Hong Kong, I have to say that there's a, a photography art space near me in Taiwan called AO Vertical Gallery, and they have an exhibition on at the moment. Uh, and one of the artists who I met last year is called Casey Kwan. And he is a, a local Chinese who works in, I believe, a, a factory building. Um, and at night, after he finishes his shift, goes out photographing what is going on in Hong Kong in the middle of the night. And his photographs are all black and white, which I'm always drawn to. Um, but he had 
this is the second exhibition of his work I've seen, and they they're very provocative images. They're very I'm trying to think how to describe them. I love looking at his work. It's very powerful. Uh, I, he, he's blown them up really huge. They're pictures of people sleeping in doorways or people sleeping in their little shop store or birds in the market. It's, but they're all of them. They've got so much depth to them that you just keep looking to see what else, what are the other details in it. So I think that he, Casey Kwan is definitely somebody to apply out for. And where can people go to find out more about you and your work? I have two websites. One is uh, joefarrell.com and the other one is livinghistory.photography. Oh, I also have a Facebook page, which is Joe Farrell Photography. Great. So I have uh, multiple areas that uh, I'm uh, keeping up online. And I'll have all, all those links in, in the show notes. But uh, Joe, Excellent. thank you so much for making Thank time you. For I look forward to hearing it. <laughs> Thanks for joining me for another episode of the show. Remember that my latest book, Portraits of Strangers, is available for purchase. And for loyal listeners of the show, you can enjoy 30% off the ebook or any other book or DVD that I've produced, including my first book, Chasing the Light, Improving Your Photography Using Available Light. Click on the link on the show notes and use the promo code PORELLO, that's P as in Paul, E-R-E-L-L-O, to receive your discount. The Candid Frame is brought to you by the generous contributions of listeners just like you, as well as the work of our audio engineer, Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.